Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week we turn to the words of Scripture to guide us in our lives. An important part of the New Testament is made up of the letters that the founders of the early church, primarily St. Paul, wrote to the communities that were gathering together around the news of Jesus' teachings and his death and resurrection. These letters can help us to learn to live together in a loving and compassionate manner, an important lesson for us living in times of division and often hatred. The passage that I'm focusing on today comes from a letter Paul wrote to the people of Corinth, an ancient city in Greece where there were many disagreements arising over what it meant to be a follower of Christ. His description of one body with many members may be the best description of community ever written. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-27 For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our most respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Here ends the reading. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a challenge for us to live together in communities. Human nature fights against it. We all have our own self-interest to look out for. Now that self-protective instinct is necessary since without it we wouldn't survive. But if we become totally self-centered, the world becomes unlivable. In the end we would devolve into complete anarchy and none of us would survive, or at least we would live in constant violent conflict and chaos. We call that self-centeredness sin. 
Throughout history, human beings have found ways to join together in communities of different degrees, families, tribes, cities, kingdoms, nations, and finally, a global community. Even within these associations, we struggle to live together at peace. Human civilization is a work in progress. Paul had the vision of the church as the ideal community. This community would value the individual member. At the same time, those members would be bound together in one spirit, one body that would share in the mission of Jesus Christ in establish, establishing peace and justice among all humankind. That universal church has fallen short of that goal over the ages, and it still, too, remains a work in progress. One of the noblest attempts to create a just community was in the American experiment, the forging of one nation from people of diverse origins. In 1776, the motto, E Pluribus Unum, out of many one, was suggested to adorn the great seal of the United States. Today, the motto is found on U.S. coinage and the presidential seal. The many referred to the 13 colonies joining together, but it also refers to individual citizens united under one flag. The greatest challenge to the ideal of unity was exhibited tragically in the American Civil War when the nation was split in two. It took four years of bloody conflict to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Even today, cultural, political, and racial fault lines still exist. Fortunately, we remain one nation indivisible. Our unity is most threatened during times of national disasters or emergencies. In our current situation, the COVID-19 pandemic pulls us apart. In public health disasters, we should all seek to protect our own health and safety and that of our families, but our actions also impact others. Personal freedom can be pitted against the public interest. I saw a Facebook post recently that illustrated this conflict. The post read, I'm not going to get vaccinated. If you want to, that's fine with me. I want restaurants to open to full capacity now. If you don't, eat your meals at home. I choose not to wear a mask. If you do, then wear one. I want schools to open up fully. If you don't, homeschool your kids. America is the land of the free. I'll live my life and you live yours. Now on the face of it, this bullet list of competing personal choices seems to be consistent with American values and principles. It seems reasonable. We live in a country where we can make individual decisions. Especially when it comes to matters affecting our personal health, our bodies, and our freedom of movement, 
our personal rights are paramount. This distinguished us from ancient monarchies and still makes us different from totalitarian states. But the flaw in this way of thinking is that it assumes that each of us exists in our own personal bubble, walled off from the rest of our fellow citizens. We each travel our own course, caroming off one another like billiard balls on a table. You go your way, and I'll go mine. We'll all be happy. Collisions are inevitable, but the ball with the most inertia prevails. This is the way of rugged American individualism. Sociologist Robert Bella, in his book, Habits of the Heart, puts it this way. American individualism demands personal effort and stimulates great energy to achieve, yet it provides little encouragement for nurturance, taking a sink-or-swim approach to moral development as well as economic success. It admires toughness and strength and fears softness and weakness. It adulates winners while showing contempt for losers, a contempt that can descend with crushing weight on those considered, either by others or themselves, to be moral or social failures. Although this passage from Bella criticizes the individualistic tendency in American culture, rugged individualism was necessary for survival of the adventurous settlers heading west across the Great Plains. The image of the square-jawed Marlboro man, sitting proudly alone atop his horse, surveying the land of opportunity that lies before him, exemplifies this frontier, frontier spirit. These brave men and women had to be tough in order to survive. And they ultimately succeeded in conquering this hostile continent. And we are heirs to their success. From the beginning, however, the Founding Fathers developed a tradition of civic republicanism, that is, the political principle that stresses the interconnection of individual freedom and civic participation with the promotion of the common good. This interconnection was exemplified not only in government, but also in American religion. Bella goes on to write, Civic republicanism and biblical religion remind us that being an individual, being one's own person, does not entail escaping our ties to others, and that real freedom lies not in rejecting our social nature, but in fulfilling it in a critical and adult loyalty, as we acknowledge our common responsibility to contribute to the wider fellowship of life. It was these voices, above all, which we sought to amplify in the public conversation, even as we feared that our national discourse was being impoverished by the monotones of strident and ultimately destructive individualism. It's hard but necessary to hold two conflicting ideas at the same time, the individual versus community. And that's why I find Paul's one body with many members image so powerful and appropriate. In the church, we ritualize this tension in Holy Communion. 
Note the relationship between the words communion and community. Individuals come forward and unite as one at the communion rail, the one body formed of many members. The most extreme example of the communal nature of the early church is found in the book of Acts. It was described this way. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Clearly, in the early church, community took precedence over the individual. Our founding fathers recognized the dangers, though, of overemphasizing the power of a central government. They devised the Bill of Rights to assure the continuation of individual freedom. Even with this concrete list of rights, we still struggle to find that balance. Take, for example, the continuing controversy over the Second Amendment. A vigorous debate still rages over balancing individuals' right to gun ownership. This heated conversation is not a sign of weakness in our democracy. It's a sign of health and balance. The solution lies not with gun right activists or gun control advocates, but in their good faith debate. So back to the Facebook post I brought up earlier. What is the balance in this situation? First, with regards to vaccination, it seems contrary to the American spirit to pass a law that would require everyone to be vaccinated. That is, of course, along with aggressive contact tracing that some totalitarian nations are taking. Our best course lies in educating our populace of the benefits of vaccination and making the vaccine readily available to all segments of our population. Once the vaccine is available to everybody, restrictions may be necessary for certain activities. For example, we all remember the days when proof of smallpox or yellow fever vaccinations were required for international travel. Whether or not such restrictions are put in place will be decided by our elected representatives. That's how our democracy works. Should restaurants be open to full capacity? We've made straight strides in reducing infections by limiting public gatherings and enclosed spaces such as restaurants. At the same time, restaurant owners and patrons have been hit hard economically. We can continue to expand openings carefully as vaccinations limit the spread of COVID. Health restri restrictions are not unprecedented. Health rules and regulations have historically provided us with healthy and safe food to eat. Owners and employees should be provided with economic support in the meantime. The COVID aid packages 
which have been uh, passed or have been attended to do that. The part all of us pay to support these struggling businesses will be reflected in our tax burden. Should mass mandates remain in place? Now, in balance, balance, it seems reasonable to require personal sanitary measures until the pandemic is reasonably under control. The science says we're not quite there yet. The benefits of this simple change in behavior seem to far outweigh the cost of individual freedom. Ideally, education and peer pressure will suffice to encourage mask wearing and social distancing for the time being. When it doesn't, restrictions need to be passed. It's becoming apparent that opening up our schools is of vital importance. Our kids not only need person-to-person -person education, but they also need opportunities to socialize. Fortunately, it seems that opening schools can be done safely, given adequate precautions and immunization of our teachers and school support staff. And we'll need to make an economic investment to update our physical plants to make them as safe as possible. Now, this is one area where personal preferences can still be honored. Parents who want their children to continue in a virtual or hybrid classroom can be extended that opportunity. Most will probably choose to go back to the old model of instruction. Yes, America is that land of the free. But it is not a land where you go your way and I go mine. I wouldn't want it to be. It is a land where our, our freedom is guaranteed by our willingness to live responsibly and adultly in community and honor the public good. It is a land where we go into the future together. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one is celebrated, we all celebrate. Let me close by mentioning a word that to some in our culture is a dirty word. Sacrifice. Living with others with whom our interests conflict requires sacrifice. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It's not a sign of our weakness or naivety to put others' needs ahead of our own sometimes. It's the greatest virtue. E pluribus unum. God bless us one, and God bless us all. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless us and keep us. May God make his face shine upon us. May God look upon all of us with favor and grant us peace.